Good morning and Shabbat Shalom. Welcome to Beth Adonai, all the ones that are here in person and the ones that are watching us online. I'm Bobby Smith and I'll be your teacher this morning at 10 o'clock as well as next week. And then um, we're getting closer and closer to the end of our Gregorian calendar year and we're actually going to be celebrating Hanukkah very, very soon. Today I'm going to teach on the Torah portion of this week, which is Vaishlach. And before I get started, let's start as we always should with a, with a word of prayer to the Lord. Avinu Shabashamayam, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the ability to be here on this wonderful Shabbat day. Thank you for the rain that you've given us in the last couple of days. Rain is a blessing, Father, and the blessing comes from you. Father, open our hearts and our minds that we would be touched this morning by your word, that your word would fill us, and that your word would become a part of us, and that we would live your word in our daily lives. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. So, Vaishlak uh, in English means, and he sent, or at least it's transliterated, translated into English as, and he sent. Um, before I get going with this, I always have to give credit to the sources that I use. And uh, this morning I used uh, FFOZ's Tour Clubs 1 and 2, H.com, Nativ Gah, Rabbi Joseph Shulam, Art Scroll Chumash, Rabbi Jer Jeffrey Enoch Stein Feinberg, and his book Walk Genesis, Kabad.org, and um, MyJewishLearningCenter.com. So, the Torah reading in the synagogues this Shabbat is called Vaishlach, as I said. It is the story of two brothers, twin, twins born a minute apart, Jacob and Esau. These two brothers were already in competition and seek, seeking notoriety even before they came out of the mother's womb. This is what the text says from the reading of that particular Torah portion which is in Genesis 25, 22, and 23. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. These prophetic words are spoken by God himself to Rebekah before she gave birth to Jacob and Esau. These, with these words, God is summarizing the history of the relationship between these two young men and the nations that come from them. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. Jacob prepares to meet Esau as he returns to the promised land. But first, he has a mysterious encounter with an angel in the darkness who changes his name to Israel. On the trip back to Canaan, Jacob meets his brother Esau. Jacob wrestles with the angel. Then they arrive in Shechem. Shechem, the son of Kamar, the, Hef the, oh, let me see here, the Hevite, the, he's the heir of the town of Shechem, rapes Jacob's daughter Dina, or Dinah is, as it's so um, commonly pronounced. Dina's brothers, Shimon and Levi, or Shimon and Levi, which is so commonly pronounced, massacre the men of Shechem. 
Rebekah, Rivka, dies. God gives Jacob an additional name, Israel, and reaffirms the blessing of Abraham that the land of Canaan, Israel, will be given to his descendants. Rachel dies after giving birth to Benjamin. Jacob's 12 sons are listed. Isaac dies. Esau's lineage is recorded as that of Seir, the Horite, and lastly, the succession of the kings of Edom is chronicled. All these things are in this week's Torah portion. As, as I um, show you each week, the Torah portion is divided into seven, sec seven sections where the seven readers in a synagogue would come up and read the whole Torah portion, and these are, this is how it would be divided up amongst them. The Complete Jewish Bible does a great job of, um, of showing you this. This is Rabbi um, Jeffrey Enoch Steinberg's breakdown, his classification, and the way he describes each of the sections. I invite you to get that book and read it each week. It's very short, and it's a good way to, to get the summary of the Torah portions. In Genesis 32, 3-4, we begin. It's out of the frying pan and into the fire, because Jacob is leaving Laban, but he's going to see his brother. After some 20 years of labor, Jacob was finally free from Laban's mistreatment. Interestingly, the art, the art scroll Kamash says that Jacob spent 34 years away from the promised land. The scripture doesn't tell us this, but they've, um, through Jewish history, have determined this. The rabbis say that Jacob spent 14 years in the academy of Shem and Eber before he ever went to the land of, of, um, of or went to his, his uncle Laban. A fact that the sages deduce from the chrono, chrono, chronology of the period. Can you say that? So when all the rabbis say that Jacob spent 34 years away from his family, Genesis 31-38 plainly tells us that Jacob spent 20 years with, with Laban. That's what the scripture says. So that is what I have gone by with my studies. Jacob barely escaped from his angry father-in-law. Only God's direct intervention saved him from Laban's ire. One angry relative is now behind him, but Esau is still ahead of him. He knew that when he left the land, Esau wanted him dead. Jacob must have felt like he had escaped the frying pan only to fall into the fire, as we say. Jacob, having to face Esau, forced, the deal. He, it forced him to deal with his past mistakes. He knew that he must face Esau and settle the matters that he had with him. He could not simply return to the Canaan, to the land of Canaan, and pretend that nothing had ever happened. This is what dealing with our past mistakes is like. Through the course of life, our sins and our bad decisions leave broken relationships and emotional messes behind us. Ordinarily, we do exactly as Jacob did. We run from the problems and hope they'll go away. We hope the passage of time will heal the hurts that we've caused. The best solution is to deal with our mistakes when we make them. When we do wrong to someone, we should immediately do everything in our power to make amends. When we make a mistake, we should acknowledge it, correct it, and do our best to fix it. As you... Um, as the Word of God becomes a part of you and as you live the Word of God, when you do wrong, it immediately convicts you.
And at that point, you're faced with a choice, you know, and how you deal with that says a lot about your character and how effectively you really are following the Word of God. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all face judgment. Jacob elected to send messengers ahead to entreat Esau for his favor and for safe passage. He told the messengers to tell Esau that he'd return from Laban with livestock and servants. The Hebrew word malachim can be translated as messengers or angels. Ordinarily, context dictates that meaning. In this case, context confuses the meaning. Genesis 32.3 comes immediately after the malachim of God met Jacob. When he saw the angels, he said, this is God's camp. Then he named it Mahanaim, which means two camps. And he sent Malachim, angels or messengers, before him to his brother Esau. The context implies that Jacob sent angels from the camp of God as messengers to Esau. The sages differed as to whether Jacob sent human messengers or celestial beings to Esau. It's an interesting argument. I believe that he sent... Um, I believe he sent human messengers, his servants. Deliver me, I pray. Genesis 32:11. Jacob divided his family into two groups in the hope that Esau attacked one group and the other might escape. Despite these precautions, Jacob no longer relied on his wits to outsmart Esau. The years with Laban had taught him wisdom, God's wisdom. Instead of relying on his own manipulations, he turned to God in prayer, saying, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother. Jacob prepared for the confrontation with Esau in three ways. He readied himself in his camp for the battle to death. He threw himself upon God's mercy through prayer, and he sent a lavish tribute to appease Esau's anger. Daniel Lancaster in Torah Club 5, FFOZ Torah Club 5, says this. The Transordian site of Mahamin is, is called two camps because Jacob saw the angels of God camped outside his encampment and because he divided the people who were with him into two camps. Jacob observed, now I have become two camps in Genesis 32.10. Jacob's strategy of dividing into two camps prophetically foreshadowed the kingdom of Israel splitting into two sovereign nations during the reign of Rehoboam, or the son of Solomon. Under the leadership of Jeroboam, ten tribes in the north broke off from the house of David. They referred to themselves as the kingdom of Israel and Ephraim, while the southern tribes of Judah, Benjamin and Simon, referred to themselves as the kingdom of Judah. Jacob's survival strategy may also help to explain the separation of Christianity from Judaism. It should never be forgotten that Christianity was a, a sect of Judaism and, and chose to split themselves away from Judaism for a lot of reasons. In his unsearchable sovereign wisdom, God chose to conceal the good news of the kingdom and the Messiah from the majority of his people, the Jewish people. In a similar way, he concealed the enduring truth of Torah from the majority of the Gentile Christians. 
Jacob divided his family to protect them. Is it possible that the Almighty divided Christianity from Judaism for a similar reason? As the Christians and the Jewish people alike face the wrath of Rome, which is homiletically identified as Esau, they separated into different camps. One camp was preser has preserved the truth of God's Torah. Didn't mean to do that. The other camp has preserved the truth of his Messiah. Through the long centuries of exile, the two camps have safeguarded the truths entrusted to their respective communities. Now in our day, on the edge of the final redemption, we see the truth of Torah reemerging among the believers and the identity of Messiah reemerging among the Jewish people. Messianic Judaism represents a family reunion for the house of Jacob. The book of Revelation speaks of believers in possession of both the Torah, the commandments of God, and the gospel, which is faith in Yeshua. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments and their faith in Yeshua, it says in Revelation 14, 12. Jacob's prayer in Genesis 32, 11 says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers of my children. Jacob turned to prayer for protection from Esau. Jacob addressed God as the God of my father, the God of my father Isaac, the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac. A pattern we follow when we pray to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jacob mentioned the names of his fathers to remind God of his covenant obligations to them. Jacob reminded God of his promises made to Jacob that he would return him to his relatives and to the promised land and that he would prosper. Jacob left the matter with God in prayer, but he did not rely only on prayer. He also did his best to meet the situation with the resources that he had. The sages teach that a person should never rely on a miracle to save him from danger. To do so violates the commandment, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as it says in Deuteronomy 6.16. Fortified with prayer, Jacob formulated a plan to soften Esau's heart. Jacob sent his servants ahead of him and his family bearing gifts of treasure for Esau. Jacob actually said to Esau, please take my blessing, which has been brought to you. Of course, Jacob could not actually return Esau's blessing to him, but he could give Esau some of the fruit of that blessing. Esau and his 400 armed men made their way toward Jabot Canyon, where Jacob and his family were encamped. As they drew near to, to Mahanim, they saw a flock of goats coming toward them. Esau said to the shepherd driving the flock, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? To whom do these animals in front of you belong? The shepherd replied, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is the present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. Esau and his 400 men hurried on to intercept Jacob. But instead, they encountered a herd of camels and their colts. 
The same conversation ensued. After that, Esau encountered a herd of cattle. And after that, he encountered a herd of donkeys. At each encounter, Jacob's gifts softened Esau's heart a little more. The combined livestock numbered more than 550 head. The lavish gifts of livestock that Jacob bestowed upon Esau were more than just manipulative bribes. Jacob earnestly sought Esau's forgiveness. He sought to pay restitution for the blessing that he had taken. What lesson do we learn from Jacob's action? Rashi, the great commentator, tells us that Jacob had three strategies to deal with the threat of his brother. He sent the gifts to appease him, he prayed for divine assistance, and he prepared for war. Rabbi Levovitz points out that Jacob did not merely rely on his righteousness. He made every humanly effort possible. The forefathers kept to natural laws in dealing with life situations as we should. After all, the laws of nature are the Almighty's laws. He set up the universe. He set up what we deal with. This is our goal, to do all that is in our power, but to realize that our success ultimately depends upon God and God's will. Rabbi Shalom, um, I didn't incorporate this into here, but he, he feels that this is a prophetic thing, this meeting between Jacob and Esau. It's like the nation of Israel and the nation of Islam, the conflict that, 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 that goes on. They, they, they both came from these two, two people and they're, they're, they're brothers that have been estranged. The family's been estranged. And when Esau and Jacob meet and they actually embrace with one another, for the, for the very first time in history, those two nations come together as, as, as brothers. And we're still trying to get back to that even today. Tour Club, um, FFOZ Tour Club 1, describes Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. This is one of the most, um, I don't know, confusing parts of this particular Torah portion is this wrestling with the Lord. Who was he actually wrestling with? Abraham and Isaac both had their share of mystical encounters with God. He appeared to them in various modes, sometimes in dreams, sometimes in visions, at least once the angel of the Lord. Jacob also had his mystical dream in Bethel, in which he saw the ladder from heaven. His all-night wrestling match with the angel of the Lord takes the mystical encounter to a whole new level. There are three ways the wrestling match is remembered. Jacob's name change, the name of the place, which is Peniel, and the abstention of the Jews from eating the, is it pronounced sinew? The part of the hip that you can't eat? Life's dive, let's dive deeper into this. Um, the Archbold Kamash. The confrontation between Jacob and a man was one of the cosmic events in Jewish history. The rabbis explained that this man was the guardian angel of Esau and in the guise of a man. The sages teach that every nation has a heavenly power, an angel that guides its destiny on earth and acts as an intermediary between the nation and God. Two nations, however, are unique, and those are Israel 
and Esau or Edom. Israel needs no go-between. It is God's own people. And Jacob, because his image is engraved upon God's throne of glory, symbolized man's highest potential. Esau's guardian angel is different from all the others. Just as Esau promises or epitomizes evil, so his angel is the prime spiritual force of evil. Sages believe it is Hasatan himself. Satan descends and seduces man to sin, then he ascends to incite God by, prosecution for ma by prosecuting man for his sinfulness. Then he receives permission to take man's life. Satan, the evil inclination, or the Yetzer Tov, I'm sorry, the Yetzer Hurrah, and the angel of death are one and the same. The angel of Esau had to attack Jacob because as the last and greatest of the patriarchs, Jacob symbolized man's struggle to raise himself and the rest of the world with him. And Satan exists to cripple that effort. Thus the battle between good and evil, between man's capacity to perfect himself and Satan's determination to destroy him spiritually. That's what, this is one thought of who Jacob was wrestling with. The sages are saying he was wrestling with Hasatan. The Kofetz Kaim used to say, the evil inclination, the Yetzer Harad, does not mind if a Jew fasts, prays, and gives charity all day long, provided he does not study Torah. In other words, does not draw closer to his Lord. Abraham represented kindness, and Isaac represented service. Kindness and service are two of the three indispensable pillars of the world. But the third pillar, Torah, is a crucial one for Israel's success in carrying out this mission on earth. Jacob represented Torah, and without it, Israel will fail. That is why Satan did not confront Abraham and Isaac, only Jacob. Always remember that Yeshua is known as the living Torah. Jewish history bears this out all too tragically. In countries where Jews invested heroically in synagogues and charities, but not only not in institutions of Torah study, they assimilated and nearly disappeared. Only that where they remained loyal to the legacy of Jacob did they remain strong. Because with the Torah study, that's how they were able to live out God's word. God dispatched the angel to pave the way for the ultimate salvation of Jacob and his descendants. Just as Jacob was temporarily injured in the struggle but prevailed and went on to greater accomplishments, the Jewish people would suffer losses in the future but would emerge with even greater victories and blessings. The angel of evil will fight Jacob's descendants throughout history until the dawn of salvation. The angel will not prevail because Jacob cleaned, cleaved tenaciously to God. FFOZ Tour Club 5 says this, the story of Jacob's wrestling match with the angel poses several difficulties for interpreters. The literal meaning of the text makes it appear that Jacob and the Almighty had a wrestling match. In order to accept the literal meaning, a person must accept that the Holy One, blessed be he, occasionally lurks around in the dark, apparently in angelic form, and jumps on an unsuspecting fellow. Do you really believe that? Even more difficult to understand, it appears that Jacob overpowered the Almighty. He pinned him to the ground and made him plead for release. Further difficulty arises 
when the text explains why the assailant was in such a hurry to escape Jacob's clutches. It was almost dawn. It might seem as if the Almighty is afraid of the sunlight, like a phantom or boogeyman from mythology. The Targum Suedo Yonatan, hope I said that right, says that the angel Michael wrestled Jacob throughout the night. When Jacob would not release him, he said, let me go, for the sun is about to rise, when the angels on high offer praise to the Lord of the world, and I am one of the angels of praise. In other words, he had to, get, he had to go do something. The Torah does not explain why the supernatural assailant wanted him to be released before daybreak. Perhaps he did not want to be seen or recognized. The latter half of, Genesis, of the Genesis narrative circles around the motive of concealed identity. Jacob concealed his identity from Isaac. Leah concealed her identity from Jacob. Tamar, or Tamar, concealed her identity from Judah, and Joseph concealed his identity from his brothers. In this, was the wrestler wanting to conceal himself from Jacob? Or at least conceal his identity from Jacob? The plain, plain reading seems to indicate that the assailant wanted to protect Jacob from his identity. Let me go to the wrestling match there. He was afraid that Jacob would see his face in the drawing light. The Lord says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. He says this in Exodus 33.20 to Moses. Let me go before the dawn is breaking, he warned Jacob. If indeed this was the angel of the Lord, Jacob not letting go could be interpreted that he would not let go of God. He demanded a blessing. Jacob eagerly sought the Lord's blessing prior to facing his brother Esau. Jacob had been in pursuit of God's blessing from the start. He wrestled with his brother Esau for the right of the firstborn because only the firstborn stood to receive the blessing. Even though Esau prevailed, Jacob did not let go. He came out holding his heel. He emerged still holding on to Esau's heel only for the sake of the blessing. He purchased the birthright from Esau in the suit transaction only for the sake of the blessing. He deceived his father, Isaac, only for the sake of the blessing. He wrestled all his life for the sake of the blessing that God had given Abraham and to Isaac. Now he's wrestled for a confirmation of that blessing prior to his encounter with Esau. Lancaster concludes that the deepest meaning in this is the Peshat, the plain meaning. In other words, there are many interpretations and Midrashic opinions that are not confirmed in the plain reading of the text. Lancaster does not concur that Jacob was wrestling a supernatural assailant and that he prevailed. The assailant consented to bless Jacob. He asked him, what is your name? As Jacob held on to the man with all his strength, he answered, Yaakov, or Jacob, meaning heel grabber. The name referred to his talent of not letting go. Then the man said, you shall no longer be Yaakov, but you shall be Israel, or Israel as we, as we translate. For you have striven with God and with man, and you have prevailed. The word Yisrael must mean 
he struggles with God. The Torah intended the wrestling story primarily as an etiology of the name for the name of Israel. The name change delivered the blessing that Jacob wanted. He wanted to prevail over his brother Esau. The angel changed Jacob's name to Israel. God named all three of the patriarchs. He named he changed Abram's name to Abraham. He chose Isaac's name before he was born. His name meant laughter. So he now changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel, he struggled and prevailed with God and with men. Jacob should not be remembered as Jacob the trickster or Jacob the deceiver. The Torah presents him as Jacob the wrestler. Jacob wrestled with God and with men to obtain the blessing. He struggled with his brother Esau, his father Isaac, and his uncle Laban, and in each case he persisted and prevailed. Jacob prevailed because he recognized the true value of God's blessing. He was willing to, snuggle, to struggle his whole life to obtain something that Esau was willing to trade for a bowl of soup. This explains why Judaism traditionally associates Jacob with the attribute of truth. He teaches the true value of the eternal. Jacob teaches his children to hold on to God and to refuse to let go of him. Unlike Jacob, we are quick to let go of the Almighty. When he does not answer our prayer, we let go of him. When he smites us or strikes us, we let go of him. Jacob did not let go, and the Lord did not want him to let go. The Lord seeks, his, seeks people who will cling to him despite adversity and trial. In Genesis 32:29, I am who I am. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. The rhetorical question implies, you know who I am. Jacob knew he had laid hold of the God of his fathers. The Lord blessed Jacob as he had asked. The Torah does not reveal specific contents of that blessing, but it certainly pertained to his imminent encounter with Esau. Jacob could leave confident that the Almighty would protect him because he carried the blessing of the Lord. Genesis 32:30. The name of the place is Peniel. You know, before I go any further, th there's um, a lesson when you study Torah about a messenger, a shaliach. A shaliach is like Yeshua had his apostles. A shaliach represents his um, whoever has sent him. It's like when uh, Abraham sent. Eliezer to go find a wife for Isaac. He represents him as a lawyer would represent you in court. It's something that he has authority to do anything. So that's one thing of thinking about this angel that was wrestling with uh, Jacob. He had the authority as a shaliach to rename Jacob Israel. It was God himself that renamed Jacob Israel. Genesis 32.30, so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Jacob named the place 
Pinel on the basis that he had seen God, Elohim, face to face. Peniel, face of God, is what this means. Did you really see God's face? Jacob thought he did. The Torah does not say it in what sense he saw God or in what manifestation God appeared to be seen. He only knew that he had seen and encountered God, seen him in some form, and his own life had been spared. Sunrise came, Genesis 32, 31, 32. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel. This implies that the sunset at Bethel should be associated with the sunset at Peniel. The sages came to the same conclusion. It means that the sun, which is set for his sake, now rose for him. Twenty years after he had left Canaan, the long night of Jacob's exile was coming to an end. The Torah says that the sun rose over Jacob as he crossed the Jabok. The sunrise in Peniel symbolized the end of the exile. The sun of righteousness will rise with the healing in his wings. Then they will say to Zion, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, as it says in Isaiah 61. Gid ha nashe. And he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Hope I pronounced that sinew right. Sinew? Help me now. As Jacob crossed the Jabok, at Peniel, he limped from the blow he had taken to the thigh. The limp proved that the wrestling match was real. It was not a dream. It was not a vision. He had the limp to prove it. This explains the custom of, re of removing the sinew of the hip from meat. The sinew of the heap, hip, the gid ha-nashe, refers to the sciatic nerve. Mamamides codifies the custom as one of the 613 commandments of the Torah the prohibition of eating the gid hanesh, not hanasha, This is the only commandment in this Parsha. The prohibition against eating the sciatic nerve applies both within the land of Israel and outside of it, with or without a temple or a Sanhedrin. One who eats meat from a non-kosher market, particularly ground beef, can be certain that they're eating this forbid Yid HaNasheh because they don't remove it if it's not a kosher butcher. Meeting with Esau in Genesis 33.1 Jacob did everything possible to make peace with Esau. He committed the matter to earnest prayer. He sent generous gifts to compensate for the past wrongs and he demonstrated true humility and affection toward his brother. Jacob knew that a long-term relationship was impossible. Having made peace, he preferred to leave things in a good state and part company. Esau had come out to avenge himself on the wily young man who had stolen his blessing 20 years ago. Instead, he saw an old man limping on his hip, bowing seven times as he approached. 
Instead of striking Jacob down as he had planned, Esau rushed forward, threw his arms around Jacob, his brother, and he kissed him. The two wrestlers embraced again, this time in tears and genuine affection. At that moment, Jacob understood that he had spent the night wrestling with the angel of the Lord so that he would not have to wrestle any longer with his brother. This dramatic encounter brings the Jacob story to its climactic moment and opens the depths of the Torah. The book of Genesis presents the redemptive re reconciliation between Jacob and, es and Esau as a conclusion to the tensions of the previous narratives and a harbinger, harbinger for the story of Joseph and his brothers that will follow. It foreshadows the coming day of redemption and the beginning of the messianic era, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Jacob's return to the land of Canaan portends the final redemption when the exiles of Israel return to the promised land. Perhaps the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau also portends the future reconciliation between Judaism and Christianity. Genesis 33.5, he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and the children. He said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Esau lifted his eyes and looked over Jacob's family. And he asked, who are they? Each mother approached with her children and bowed before Esau. A similar scene will play out in the Joseph story in these upcoming parshas. When Jacob saw Joseph's sons born to him in Egypt, he exclaimed, who are these? And Joseph replied, they are my sons whom God has given to me here in Genesis 48, 8 and 9. A similar scene will play out in the final redemption. When the Messiah comes and gathers together the exiles of Israel, he will lead them on the clouds to the holy city of Jerusalem. Then Zion will, ex will exclaim, Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their lattices? And she will say, Who had begotten these for me, since I have been bereaved of my children and am barren, an exile and a wanderer? And who has re reared these? Behold, I was left alone. From where did these come? In Isaiah 49, 21, the Messiah will, will reply, These are the children whom God has graciously given to his servant. Don't you look forward to that? Genesis 33, 6 and 7. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah otherwise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. All of Jacob's sons bowed down before Esau, but the Torah mentions only Joseph by name. Why is that? The story of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau foreshadows the Joseph story. As with so many other themes and motives in Genesis, the entire scene recesses later in the narrative. Just as Jacob and Esau spent 20 years estranged from his brothers, the sons of Jacob feared their brother much as Jacob feared Esau. They bowed down before him like Joseph bowed before Esau, but ultimately they all reconciled with embraces and weeping. The principle of measure for measure goes both ways. Jacob humbled himself to reconcile with his brother Esau. In the same way, the next generation followed their father's example. His sons humbled themselves to reconcile with one another and put an end to rivalry. 
These themes of sibling rivalry and reconciliation foreshadow the final redemption when the spiritual forces of Jacob and Esau reconcile in Messiah and the Jewish people reconcile with their estranged brother, Yeshua of Nazareth. For Gentile believers, particularly in the Christian church, it is easy to forget that God is the God of Israel. Of course, he is also the God of the entire world, but he has a special, unique, and enduring relationship with the nation of Israel. So what is the Bible really all about? It is about Israel, the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is about the Jewish people. While there are certainly Gentiles in the Bible, most all the characters in the Bible are from the Jewish family story. If you are Jewish, this is good news. The Bible is all about you and your family. But if you are not Jewish, where does that leave Gentiles? Throughout the Bible, there are stories of Gentile inclusion into the nation of Israel. But in each one, the Gentiles are to follow the same Torah as their adoptive family. Though Gentiles are not Jewish, and according to Paul, are not required to be Jewish or to go through a formal conversion, becoming a proselyte, or undergo circumcision, they have equal rights when they enter into the family through the Messiah. In Messiah, Gentiles are citizens of the kingdom of the Israel of God. We keep the Torah because we are joined to the family of God. Genesis 33:11. Please take my blessing, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Esau made a pretense of refusing Jacob's generous gifts. Jacob insisted that Esau. Sorry about that. Jacob insisted that. I lost my place. Jacob insisted that Esau take those gifts. Jacob knew that God had lavished so much wealth upon him because he walked in his blessing with Abraham, the blessing that he had taken from Esau by deceiving Isaac. He hoped that Esau would accept the restitution. If Esau did not accept the restitution, the matter would remain unresolved. Jacob urged him to take these gifts. He did, and that settled the matter. Jacob finally felt relief of settling his account with Esau. And now it became time for them to separate th their ways. Please let my Lord pass on before this servant, and I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Reconciliation and forgiveness are usually the right things to do, but does, that does not mean that both parties should blindly trust each other henceforth. In some cases, the best recipe for peace is a safe distance. The Torah never tells us that God ever went to visit Esau at Seir. Jacob at Sukkot. This is a map of that. Hopefully you can see the general area of Israel at this time. Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. Jacob and his family descended to the Jabot Canyon and arrived at a location east of Jordan called Sukkoth. 
Biblical geographers tentatively identify the site with a high mound called Tel Deir Allah on the plain north of the stream of the, the Jabok River. The Hebrew word sukkah means temporary shelter, stable, or hut as we learn during the uh, Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Sukkot. Although Jacob did not build his booth to keep the festival of Sukkot, the Lord commanded his descendants to imitate him by building Sukkot annually as a reminder of their journey to the Promised Land, during which they lived in huts and booths. Just as God let Jacob out of exile and brought them safely into the land of Canaan, so too he led Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and safely to the Promised Land. The construction of booths during the festival of Sukkot commemorates this journey. The festival of Sukkot also foreshadows the future kingdom of heaven when Israel will dwell under the shade of the Almighty. Then the Lord will establish Messianic Jerusalem and spread a canopy over the city. Imagine the size of that hoopah. In the Messianic era, all nations will ascend to Jerusalem to hear the Torah and to worship the Lord at the festival of Sukkot. Then David's fallen Sukkah will be restored and the kingdom of Esau will become the inheritance of the children of Jacob. Jacob built Sukkoth and a house, built Sukkoth and a house, and foreshadowed the final redemption, and the exiles of Israel will return to the promised land, and he and the messianic era will commence. In that day the nations will say, Come let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob, as it says in Isaiah 2 3. Jacob journeyed to, the, to Sukkot and built for himself a house and made a sukkah. At Shechem, this is Shechem. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And when he came from Padan Aram, he camped before the city. Why did Jacob buy land at Shechem? Shechem? The Lord first appeared to Abraham at Shechem and said, To your seed I will give this land, in Genesis 12, 7. Of course, he meant the whole land of Canaan, but Jacob could choose a more, how could he choose a more purposeful place to begin taking a possession of the land than here? He initiated the process by buying a parcel of land, and it's recorded in the Torah. Apparently, Jacob believed that the covenant, covenantal promises given to Abraham and Isaac were about to be fulfilled. He hoped to see his sons inherit the land, beginning with Shechem. Years later, on his deathbed in Egypt, Jacob bequeathed his land at Shechem to Joseph with a short wordplay on the name Shechem that sounded like an attempted etiology. He said, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one shoulder, Shechem, more than your brothers, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Joshua and the children of Israel buried Joseph's bones in a tomb on Jacob's land in Shechem. According to the Midrash Rabbah, the Bible records the amount of Jacob paid for the purchase so that no one can dispute Jewish ownership of the holy place where Joseph is buried. As and it's the same with, with Abraham's burial site. As we saw in the comments in the Parsha, Kaisara, the Bible records three such transactions. The Machpelah, the tomb of Joseph, and the Temple Mount are the three.
Each of these transactions involved the purchase of a site that remains holy to Jerusalem to this day. Ironically, none of these three locations remain under Jewish sovereignty today. In all three instances, Islamic propaganda claims that Jews stole Muslim holy places and claimed them as their own. The scriptures anticipated today's situation thousands of years before the fact, which is why those transactions are actually recorded in the Torah. Dina's folly, or Dinah's folly for our English interpretations of her name. Genesis 34, 1 through 2. Now Dinah, or Dina, the, Lord, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hevite, of the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay her by force. Our social circles are important. We become like the people that we hang around with. We absorb their values and tend to imitate their behavior. If we want to keep on a moral path, we cannot dwell in the presence of the immoral. Though God's people aren't meant to be a, are meant to be a light to the world, they are not to be of the world. The people of God are supposed to be a different type of people. In order to be different, we need to maintain strong boundaries. This means missing out on lots of opportunities that the world has to offer. The head of the city of Shechem was a heave king named Hamor. He had a son named Shechem, just, as, just like the name of the city. Shechem raped Jacob's daughter, Dina, and then asked for her hand in marriage. Hamor offered a generous compensation for the insult of Jacob's daughter full rights to the land for Jacob and his sons. He says, intermarry with us. Give, us. give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. This might seem like a fulfillment of what the Lord had promised to Abraham at Shechem. To your seed I will give this land, he said. Jacob's family, the seed of Abraham, had the opportunity to inherit the land by intermarrying with these Canaanite people of Shechem, but Jacob knew better. If Jacob and his sons had accepted the offer, they would have forfeited the promised land. Intermarriage with the Canaanites would have made their descendants Canaanites, and the Lord had already resolved to drive the Canaanites out of the land. Hamar, the father of Shechem, offered Jacob and his family a bridal payment and a gift of any price they would ask for Dinah. He desired to assimilate Jacob and his family into the Canaanite people of Shechem. That was an impossibility. If Jacob and his family had mixed into the Canaanites, it would have meant an end to the Abrahamic covenant. The lesson of this story is that two wrongs do not make a right. It was wrong for Shechem to violate, to violate Dinah, but it was also wrong for the sons of Jacob to take vengeance into their own hands. Jacob was furious with his sons and horrified by their treacherous act. He said, you have brought trouble on me. The type of trouble Jacob referred to was not just distress and danger, it was bad luck, a broken taboo. Jacob was right. He had a string of trouble ahead of him, and so did his sons. So he escaped to Bethel. I think I have that too. As Jacob agonized over his plight, the Lord appeared to him at Shechem and instructed him to go to Bethel, settle there, and make an altar. 
Jacob remained under his vow to return to Bethel and give the Lord a tenth of all that he had acquired. The Lord instructed him to return to Bethel, to Bethel and make good on that vow. The journey from Shechem to Bethel retraces the route Abraham followed when he first entered the land of promise. After sacrificing at Shechem, Abraham traveled on to Bethel. Jacob had promised that if God protected him and prospered him and returned him to Canaan, he would return to Bethel, which means house of God, and sacrifice to God a tenth of all of his livestock. God had kept his end of the bargain. It was time for Jacob to fulfill his. Before we can enter into God's presence, we need to renounce idolatry and cast off the things in our lives that are offensive to God. Before undertaking the journey to Bethel, Jacob instructed his household to put aside all the foreign gods. In addition to the valuables that Jacob's household and his servants had brought with them from Aram, they had recently acquired the women and children and valuables of the city of Shechem. Jacob also told them to purify themselves ritually in preparation for the pilgrimage. He told them, purify yourselves and change your garments. In the Torah, washing one's garments or changing one's garments implies ritual immersion. Jacob wanted his family to be in a state of ritual purity before they went to Bethel. When the Torah says that they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, they must have included the household idols that Rachel had stolen from her father. The Apostle Paul says that immorality, passion, evil desire, and greed amount to idolatry in Colossians 3.5. Idolatry is obedience to the enemy. Our purification comes through the Messiah. How shall we prepare to enter the house of God? We must repent, be purified in Messiah, change our garments, take off our old self, and put on our new self. We are in Messiah. We are out of idolatry. Genesis 35.4 talks of the sacred trees. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which they were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Although the Torah forbids worship associated with sacred trees, the patriarchs chose holy places beneath great trees and even planted trees at their high places of worship. Although the Torah forbids erecting sacred stones, Jacob set up standing stones as sanctuary markers and used them in ceremonial worship of God. The prohibitions on those acts of worship had not yet been revealed. The patriarchs worshiped God according to the conventions of worship that they knew. They did not worship the trees or the standing stones, but they incorporated them into their worship of God. The Torah never criticizes them for doing so. This teaches that God receives the sincere worship of his people even when they fall outside of the Levitical ideal, as hard as that may be to believe. Genesis 35:7. Jacob returned to Bethel where he had dreamed of the ladder reaching to heaven. He kept his vow by build, building an altar to the Lord and sacrificing on it. So, as it. so it is as if God said to Jacob, Your name will be Israel, or Israel, and a nation, the Jewish people, and a congregation of the nations, the Gentile believers, will come forth from you. In Genesis 35, 16, we learn of Rachel's death. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there, were, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrah, Rachel became, began to give birth, 
and she suffered a severe labor. Jacob and his family left Bethel and made their way south down to the patriarchal highway toward Hebron, where his father Isaac still lived. While the family traveled, Rachel went into labor with her second child. She had named her previous son Yosef, Joseph, meaning may he add another son. God answered her prayer, and she gave birth to a second son. Rachel suffered a severe labor, and as the child was born, the midwife, midwife tried to cheer her. Do not fear, for, for you have another son. Rachel knew she was dying. With her last breath, she named her son Benoni, which is Benjamin, which means son of my trouble. Jacob renamed the child Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. Jacob buried Rachel on the road to Bethlehem. Rachel's death came only a short time after Jacob discovered she had stolen Laban's household gods. The sages connected her death with Jacob's oath to Laban. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live, he said in Genesis 31-32. With those words, Jacob inadvertently spoke a curse upon his beloved wife. That's her tomb. Rachel's tragic and premature death sets her apart from the other six mothers. According to tradition, Sarah, Rebekah, Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah all rest with her husbands at Machpelah in Hebron. Rachel lies alone beside the way to Bethlehem. She appeared again alone mourning the exiles being led off to Babylon in Jeremiah 31.15. She raised her voice again over the slaughter of the innocents at Bethlehem in Matthew 2. People still visit her tomb today. Benjamin was the last of the 12 sons. Often it happens that joy and sorrow come intertwined. The boy was indeed the son of Rachel's trouble, but he was also a source of joy for his father. The birth of Benjamin completed the full number of Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob's sons were destined to be the forefathers of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. Genesis 35, 23-26 lists the names of Jacob's sons. And we have the death of Isaac. After all these years, late after seeing Jacob and his family, Isaac died. Rather than finally taking vengeance on his brother, Esau helped Jacob bury their father, in the tomb at Machpelah, where Abraham, Sarah, and Rebekah were already buried. After the death of Isaac, Esau willingly removed himself, his family, and his goods from the land of Canaan. They settled in the hill country of Seir, a land away from his brother Jacob, Genesis 36.6. The Torah portion concludes with an entire chapter dedicated to charting out the descendants of Esau. Just as Jacob's children became a mighty nation, the nation of Israel, so too did Esau's descendants become a great nation, the nation of Edom. And there is the map of Edom. The prophecy that was originally given to Rachel about them becoming two great nations from her womb became a reality. It became true. And so that's what ends our Torah portion today. There are so many lessons in there that you could never discuss in an hour or deliver in an hour.
So I welcome you to teach, to uh, take Torah, to study Torah. Rabbi Rene has a wonderful Torah class. He studies. He's one of the most um, knowledgeable Torah teachers that I've ever come across, you know. Not that I've come across a ton of them, but I do read a lot of them. So, um, uh, and each week what he does is, is he goes into depth into all these different concepts of the Torah. And, and we didn't even cover the half Torah or the, or the uh, Brit Kaddishahs. There's so many different things to each Torah, Torah reading. The, the book of um, Obadiah that, 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 that details the conflict between the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom and the, the, the prophetic fact that Israel will overcome is, is just an awesome study too is the half Torah portion this week. But anyhow, next week I'm going to be back and I'm going to be teaching about um, um, Hanukkah. Hope you'll be here for that. We're going to go, go through uh, a good lesson of the history of Hanukkah. And if you like preparing or reading, if you've never heard of Maccabees, the book of Maccabees 1 and the book of Maccabees 2, they are excellent reads to teach you a, a lot about the history of Hanukkah. So let's close with a prayer. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you for allowing me to do this today. Hopefully the word was received well and that we take this and derive wisdom from it, lessons from it, things we can apply as we um, interact with others and as we live our lives. Father, I pray that as we come in contact with others that they see you in us in all that we do, that we follow your commandments, Father, that we live your word, and that we always do your will in our lives and make you proud. May you be with us as we go through the rest of this day, through our service and through our teachings this afternoon, and as we go into our week next week. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.